You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. Hi, I'm Deb Seminary, and I'm sitting here with my husband, Mike, the host of Mike Seminary and Friends. It's been a little over a year since he started these podcasts, and I kind of want to know, Mike, how's it going? It's been over a year? Oh, my Lord, it's gone so fast. I'm having so much fun, and thanks to you, I wouldn't be doing it. Well, I'm certainly glad that I came up with the idea. It has been keeping you busy and occupied and not bothering me too much. So. And I've paid you a boatload of money for all the work you're doing, haven't I? Oh, yeah. Yep. I well, really. I cook meals. I appreciate that. Um, but let's talk about the guests. You've had some really cool guests. You talk to musicians. You've even had musicians play for you. Mm-hmm. Um, some authors. Uh, you- Entrepreneurs. People I've never met, I've, one way or another, another stumble into them, and I've and I've learned a lot. I've never read so much in preparing, uh, preparing for who I'm going to interview, and it's been a gas. Research is important, isn't it? It is. Yep, and I'm really glad that you just don't use Wikipedia, and that's the only thing. I'm glad you really died. What's Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I read a lot. I mark up books. I buy too many books. Eh, maybe not too many. It's okay. You're retired. You don't have anything else to do. And so, who are you going to have on this week? I don't know. Let's listen and find out. Okay. Welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. Gotcha. Today is... We continue to discuss manufacturing and its importance in North Dakota. I'm so thrilled to have someone joining me that really gets this. And frankly, it's kind of a family thing, I suspect. We'll cover a, a lot of ground uh, today. Kristen Hedger is a senior vice president at Kilder Mountain Manufacturing. Kristen, welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. Thank you for taking time to join me. I know you're busy. It's great to see you. How are you? Fantastic, and uh, great to be with you. Wonderful to see you as well, and uh, you know, just really looking forward to spending some time together. Well, thank you. Kind of a way as a background, I think we first met when, because uh, you have this servant's heart about you. You were running for a public policy office in North Dakota, because that's very important to you and to me, by the way. And I think I met you on a horse. And then yes. fast forward, we're on the Economic Development Foundation board for the state. And that's where we get to have more interaction. So I think if I'm missing something, I think that's kind of how we know each other, if I'm not mistaken. You nailed it. Yeah, I was on a horse. And I was um, thankful to see you could, I could, I appreciated your passion for service as well and, and involvement. And I had just completed my studies in divinity school and was grateful to be back home in North Dakota. And so I liked your last name. I was drawn to that, too. So it's a good ballot name. <laughs> <laughs> it was. In fact, when I was going door to door, somebody said, what's up with that name? And shortly before my, my run, the Pope had been to the United States. I said, well, when the Pope was here, I bought the franchise. Because I didn't know I didn't know what else to say about the name in central North Dakota, but it worked for me anyway. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. So 
I'm going to kind of tee this up this way. Kildare Mountain Manufacturing. For folks that don't know the geography very well of North Dakota, here's where Kildare is and where the company was founded. And correct me, Chris, if I say any of this wrong. It's in Dunn County, which is in kind of not smack dab in the oil patch, but it's out in the oil patch in Dunn, Dunn County, western North Dakota, north of Dickinson, north of Stark County. Dunn County has about, I don't know, 4,000 people. The county seat is Manning, and that has maybe 74 or 75 people. Kilder Man Mountain Manufacturing is in Kilder, where it started, in Kildare, which right. is a city of about, I don't know, 700 for the last 40, 50 years, but because of the oil boom, it's up around 1,000 or 1,100. So is that kind of correct? Yeah, you're pretty much right there in the ballpark. When we were founded uh, in 1987, Kildare um, is indeed, you know, very near and remains the oil uh, oil patch, the Bakken. Uh, and in the 80s, the price of oil was down very low, and we were in a drought year. So my grandparents and my father, my family had a great passion, but my grandparents had just moved back home from Arizona um, where they worked in aerospace and saw the real need for a town in Kildare at that time was around 600 people. And many people were struggling to hang on to their ranch and farmsteads and just uh, make a break even, really. So our family saw a potential to see if we did labor-intensive subassembly manufacturing in aerospace, which is a strength that my grandfather had brought to the table from University of North Dakota. Uh, he had a good engineering degree, electrical engineering degree. And so uh, he reached out to some of his friends from uh, previous encounters working for Honeywell and uh, Sperry Rand at the time and said, look, can we do some labor-intensive subassembly work for you? And sure enough, uh, you know, we were able to provide that supplementary income, the health care uh, benefits that were very good for um, many in the community. And, you know, from there, we kind of took off, no pun intended, on, in aerospace uh, manufacturing. Okay, so that's good information. It helps me with a number of things. I'm going to go back to the, 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 the time frame because that's critically important. Okay. But I have to ask this question first. Was there farming or agriculture in the history of your family? Sure. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, agriculture, I think that's kind of near and dear to, to everybody's heart. I myself took a risk in, in uh, buying some beef cattle and <laughs> promptly learned that was not a strength. I tried to mix a couple of unique breeds for the region, but I thought, by golly, I was going to be the biggest cattle bearer ever. But so that was kind of that's kind of a funny narrative for a different time or or perhaps in this podcast. But my great-grandfather was very passionate about horses. Now, he was a, a dentist, but um, was very much into Appaloosa horses and worked with trading them with the Native Americans. Uh, the three affiliated tribes is very near uh, Kildare. So he was fluent in Hidatsa and had a great value for the culture and um, enjoyed that. So we, we have run some beef cattle, though not as large as many of the ranches in the area, but certainly grew up, I myself grew up where I could ride before I could walk, and 
most of our family members were very passionate about beef cattle, but really a great love for uh, for horses. Hmm. The reason I ask is, particularly in North Dakota, when we have the opportunity to visit with risk-taking entrepreneurs, especially those where it, it worked and their their vision and dream became something pretty significant. Mm-hmm. There's this connection to agriculture. There's this connection to farming. There's just and I, I and I say that so complimentary because and now for followers of this podcast are probably getting sick sick of me saying this. There isn't a greater risk taking entrepreneur that somebody <laughs> somebody farming. I mean, there just isn't. So back to what. <laughs> so back to back to the time when your grandfather and grandmother came back. It was eighty four. It was the drought. And the reason I know this is uh, actually eighty seven. I think is when they opened. I moved to Bismarck in eighty five, after the oil boom had busted. Then the drought started. The economy was tough. The the it was incredibly difficult for farmers for a number of reasons. There were foreclosures and auctions everywhere, mm-hmm. and you would think there's no way. I, in fact, there's a great book written by Sarah Vogel called "The Farmer's Attorney," that gives really? a really good history of, of what we're just talking about. I would, and it's it is a page turning book, by the way. I would encourage everyone to read that. So here they are in Kildare, when it's about as tough as it can get. Pretty much. Yeah, it was in, in the, the joke. See, in, in addition, some of the agriculture activities that any family, even though we never were a large ranching family, we had land and a great appreciation for it. But you take some stuff for granted with even, I can't remember how large my uncle's herd was. Mine that I ran with his, I, I think I got up to like six heifers. So it was pretty small. And then, you know, of course, all of them took, but they uh, you know, like you say, it's a lot of risk. You know, there's ailments that befall them. And, of course, the breed I chose, Santa Gertrudis, which is a little goofy, wouldn't herd properly. They weren't very good mothers. <laughs> and it's just all these unanticipated things. So I, I learned a lot in that stint. But that having been said, there's, uh, you know, you got to pay your own land, grow alfalfa. I mean, there's a lot of things like that, even in a small operation. So uh, land management and stewardship is very important. So when a drought befalls you, it's uh, it's it you know it really shatters, puts a lot of strain on families, and uh, it it really hurts opportunities, especially when um, you know that that agrarian part of your soul is so integrally affected. I mean, it really you can feel it; it's palpable. So to have, especially in Western North Dakota, two things happen at the same time: energy, which is an inherently boom bust industry and our family was very active in that oil so i heard all these wonderful stories of my dad flying around with you know the likes of mike armstrong and others and doing all kinds of great things and then you know here i was born in 1980 and grew up where it was we're broke (laughs) so it's kind of and the joke i had always heard is well it's kind of either the chicken or the feathers so um that time period (laughs) in the 80s was the feathers i guess but a lot of Sacrifice and, and uh, it was it was tough times. You nailed it. I mean, you showed up at a time when it was very very difficult, and I think the vision that my grandparents had, and a vision I've really come to uh, understand, 
is the stability that manufacturing can provide in a diversified market. It's so, so um, beneficial. You know, it doesn't, you don't fly real high like some of the, uh, when, you know, some of those oil guys were able to do that I heard about growing up. But there's the stability to put food on the table and have um, some uh, knowledge that you're not going to have to suffer through the feathers necessarily. (laughs) To to tee up where we're going to go next, the Kilder Kilder Mountain Manufacturing, one of the reasons they're dedicated to creating jobs in Western North Dakota and a manufacturer in electronic components for military and aerospace. Some of the clients or customers are Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, you know, monsters. Context, Boeing has about 140,000 employees globally, and they do about $60 billion in revenue. And they work with KMM out of Kildare, North Dakota. So before we go back to digging into that a little bit more, you, you're born, you, you, I'll repeat it, 1980, since you offered it up. And you decide, you, you go away, because there's, there, there's a lot of smarts in your family. You go away to the East Coast to go to school, American University in Washington, get your bachelor's. And then Yale, which is also the alma mater of former Governor Jack Dalrymple, to right. get your master's. When, when you were out there compared to... Again, down county of 4,000 people, Manning 74, and now Kildare roughly 1,000 because of the oil boom. Were you intending to go back to North Dakota? Always. And in fact, that was a passion that I had had. I would pray from a very young age um, that the Lord would help me to basically bless me with the opportunities, the insights to hone my talents such that I could do a good job in the way of giving back uh, in, uh, with a public service mind. So I always I was blessed to have good uh, mentors and uh, good influences and good opportunities. And like you say, um, thankful to kind of come from relatively good stock that does take risks. And um, so with that in mind, I kind of said, sure, you know, what are the best schools that you can go to for, uh, you know, that effort to hone yourself for public service? Uh, and giving back. And uh, American University has part of its tenant. You know, it's uh, chartered by Act of Congress to help train uh, public officials. And so that seemed like a good thing. They've got a good government affairs school. So with that sort of simple sort of cowgirl take on how to go about things, it seemed like that made some sense. And then, um, you know, of course, the traditional track, many pursue the study of law. I did take some legal classes, but it just didn't have that passion. I always valued ethics and philosophy and theology. And so with that, I went and talked to a pastor there at National Presbyterian, and he suggested that I pursue studies at Yale Divinity School, which I said, that sounds fantastic, but can we choose a place maybe I could get into? But I was grateful to take that risk and thankful for the opportunity to spend there. But I I actually was looking for every opportunity I could to get back to North Dakota just as quick as I possibly could. I like um, the heartland perspective, and uh, you know that's that's kind of I was looking forward to that. But I did I did value my time on the East Coast. It was fun, hmm. good experience. 
Were you giving serious consideration during any of that time of becoming a pastor? Um, no, I really didn't. I didn't. Uh, I did not consider that for a few theolo- theological reasons. Um, but more than anything, I really felt um, serving in the more secular realm, but but honing the skills and being prayer minded is very important to me. And then mm-hmm. also the other thing that I had wanted to study was I I was on Capitol Hill working for at that time then Senator Byron Dorgan on 9-11 and I really wanted to uh, understand some of the perspectives of the Islamic community and um, so I had the ability to study with some pretty good academic minds there uh, just to kind of get a perspective of you know where are we going and what are what are these what are the perspective uh issues we're going to have to address as public servants in the future. My next question, I again, have to give a little background first. It's always a pleasure to serve on boards and commissions, the likes of the Economic Development Foundation. One of the things I noticed about you, Kristen, is that you're really a good listener and um, you really only say something when it's you know, critically important because you're just a you're a critical listener and a critical when you ask critical questions. That said, when you were out east and you were asked questions about North Dakota, how did you pitch North Dakota, where you're from, and why you might go back or would go back? Well, it was real easy because I mean, it was just I think. The um, the passion just kind of naturally flowed from my heart, <laughs> so I think um, my peers really had a unique appreciation for um, me sharing one our commitment to be good stewards of the land. Yale is a really neat school because it really celebrates inter interdisciplinary study, so they encourage each school to kind of interact with each other. So I spent some time with uh, other students from the forestry school many of whom were studying to go to work for, um, you know, the Bureau of Land Management, the USDA, and other agencies that would kind of have a direct impact on um, North Dakota, the EPA. And um, I think that that was kind of some fun interactions in that they would kind of, from an academic perspective, my perspective, I perceived them as sort of, oversimplifying or being too book oriented and failing to really appreciate the fact that our ranchers and farmers are not looking for opportunities to over farm or to overgraze our land. We know it, you know, many times generations back and uh, have a very great appreciation that you just can't learn in a book. And I think that there was some cool opportunities for me to share you know, like our neighbor in the Badlands, a guy named Joe Reeves, who not sure if he'd even want me to use his name, but I'm in his fan club anyhow because he's a great rancher. <laughs> but, you know, he said there's some things that you just can't really learn in that book and that you learn from generations of hard work and um, a genuine love for the livestock that you're raising and the land that you're on. And so I think that when people would ask, certainly um, academics who are uh, curious about, uh, the sort of the middle 
the heartland perspectives, that was a cool opportunity, I felt, to provide them an insight that really flowed from the heart. And uh, I think that they, they appreciated that. And many of my other divinity school friends uh, valued, I think, the, the, that risk-taking uh, spirit, that rugged individualism that exists and exudes from North Dakota. I think that they liked to kind of hear that there's a lot of faith uh, that is intermingled within that community too. And so a lot of folks would say, Hey, I look forward to the opportunity to visit North Dakota. And so hopefully I did a little bit in the way of bolstering some perspective tourism. <laughs> Before we get back to manufacturing, a lot of folks that, that I've met during the course of my years, and I'm an old guy now, if, if they're not really familiar with farming and agriculture and farmers and the, and the industry itself, and you haven't been on a farm, it's hard to, I think, appreciate that the overwhelming majority of farmers, first of all, they're all risk-taking entrepreneurs, but that resource and asset they have, the land, they make sure they take really good care of it because if they're not, it's hard to survive. So they, they're... They're incredible water engineers. They know how to mix the fertilizers correctly to get um, it the most productive crop possible without damaging the soil because they have to go back to it year after year after year. And it's the love of, not their profession, the love of the land and their animals, like you, you articulately said. That's a big deal. And uh, they're, they're great conservationists, too. I mean, they... All of them that I know uh, are passionate about taking good care of the asset that they that they're responsible for. So, manufacturing here in out in Dunn County, Kildeer Mountain Manufacturing since 1987 has had clients, customers uh, are some of the biggest going concerns on the planet. Your one of your responsibilities is business development. How do you go about your day when it comes to reaching out, providing customer service, finding new contacts, and then selling them on the attributes of your company? And if they ever ask about North Dakota, how do you address that? That's a big question. I'm sorry, but that's what I, what I th- thought I'd start with. Fantastic. Well, that's an easy question, really. I was blessed with the, you know, I was living in with my grandparents at the time that they started KMM in 87 in, in Kildeer. And, uh, and my dad was also very active, too, on some of the travel aspects necessary to go and bolster those relations, uh, in, which did require a lot of, a lot of travel. One of the biggest lessons that I learned is the first thing you start off with is prayer. So that, that's simple. Just say your prayers and show up. Um, and I valued that, and that's something that I maintain and take still to this day. Speaking about North Dakota, that was one of our toughest challenges, honestly. And we had a number of customers who said, you know, manufacturing traditionally exists in the coastal regions. You have to bear in mind, this is before the luxuries of internet and some of the other things that have enhanced our commerce. So we really had to spend a lot more time on the airplane, 
which there were difficulties. Some customers uh, were sort of somewhat apprehensive about two things. One, what they perceived as weather that could preclude us from having on-time delivery. And two, the fact that you have to go through a Minneapolis or a Denver in order to get to a Bismarck, and then you'd have to drive still further after that. Whereas many of the other, our competitors were in like a San Diego or a Seattle area or a St. Louis or Philadelphia or Boston, where you can just fly direct there anytime that you want. So with that, I mean, those were some challenges. And the way that we overcame that, again, I still think it harkens back to our reliance on prayer. And, um, you know, we're just very blessed in that regard. But, and I, so I think, it, I think that paved the way for us to have some unique, differing conversations. And I think our customers saw the, the family um, oriented aspect that our, my grandmother really did well to, to foster and my grandfather too. And our commitment to our community, I think, spoke volumes. The very that our customers valued the fact that we were starting our company with people who were equally community minded, working to provide quality products. Really recognized how fortunate it is to be a part of such an elite supply chain, and for that reason, we're willing to go the extra mile. We didn't take these job opportunities for granted. And um, I think that that just came through in a very intangible, but very um, organic way to our prospective customers. And I think that remains to be the case today. Before I forget, your, your grandpa, grandfather Don, electrical engineer, graduate out of UND, Patricia, your grandma, where was she from and what's, what was her background? Kildeer. So she's from Kildeer as well. Uh, Papa was from Halliday, and um, so they but they met uh, at Kildeer High. So my grandmother was a nurse. She went on to become a nurse, and um, they she obtained her studies at University of North Dakota too. So Papa uh, Don Hedger kind of wanted to see what he you know he came pretty rough times for him growing up as well. So he figured if it's very very hard, there's got to be some good opportunities in it. So he asked, what's the hardest thing I can study? And uh, I believe it was the dean, but one of those mentors at University of North Dakota said, well, electrical engineering. So Papa said, put me in that. Let's, let's go. So from there, he just had a very good natural inclination. I mean, he's just so incredibly uh, smart when it comes to, well, a number of things, but certainly very good at engineering and was able to contribute a lot in the way of um, design and other capabilities in uh, in aerospace, working with NASA and other very exciting realms to advance the state of the art perpetually. And he too worked a little bit in sales as well, very successfully. So he had, uh, you know, I could I certainly learned a lot from him in that regard. Electrical engineers are scary smart, and <laughs> frankly, you you want scary smart people working on sensors that indicate whether the airliner's landing wheels are down or not, that you want a scary, smart person that's really yeah. focused, that knows how to do that. Yeah, one of the platforms he worked on was um, was autopilot. Those <laughs> <laughs> were some pretty risky times. It's my understanding that as they were testing that, he had to kind of push the limit on some of the technology. So, yeah, scary, smart, and, and he helped me get a – 
an A in the third grade science fair project. It was hilarious. I worked with a couple magnets from a speaker to demonstrate how using the technology at that time, which I would have been in my late 80s, um, to go to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly my, my teacher, who oddly, her name was Mrs. Erland, was from Bismarck. And this was at a school in Texas. I kind of grew up a little bit like most people retire. I, I went to uh, my school year, I guess it'd be like a winter Texan, was in Kerrville, Texas. And my uh, summer and holidays were in Kerrville, or wasn't, were in Kildare. So you can imagine this teacher from Bismarck loving to have this North Dakota kid uh, knocking it out of the park on this science project, but very clearly knowing that I must have had some uh, significant help. <laughs> Give us kind of an overview of, of the product lines that you supply, and you're a tier one manufacturer. Explain that with regards to the relationships with the OEM customers that you have relationships with. Sure. So in that regard, um, on, on some commercial platforms, and a few military, we are what's called a tier one. That means we're, and that is to, in this instance, I'll reference Boeing. Um there's for wire harnesses, that's one of the product lines that we supply, which is essentially the nervous system of the aircraft. So um, it'll do the things that you reference, such as in instruct the landing gear to go down or inform the pilot as to fuel levels or, um, you know, also probably complement some of the, the power associated with even the coffee pot that we might want to utilize when we're in there and enjoying our flight. So um, in that realm of... We're one of only four, and that's a global supply chain that uh, pr produces those the product line and supplies it to a Renton facility, which that's the final assembly for, in this instance, 737, but we're also active in support of uh, other intercontinental aircraft, such as a 777, um, that you would fly on long-haul flights, very large aircraft. And then we also supply um, circuit cards, which would be kind of more like the, the brains, I guess you'd say, of smaller um, units that are complementary and informing such things such as like cockpit displays and other, other realms. So our business model is half defense and half commercial. It's one that my grandpa kind of put in line. And it's a pretty conservative uh, business model. It's kind of, it's nice because obviously it's a different type of a customer. Uh, and so sometimes uh, demand can shift from one area to the other. And again, with the goal of always providing good, good jobs uh, in our communities. So that stability of having that diversification helps. And so we're thankful we've got some good customers. Your, your grandfather was the original visionary innovator, the, the person, not that he didn't, work with other folks, but he was the, the person that had the vision to create the first product line, if you will, that uh, KMM offers. Is that, is that accurate? Well, you know, I, I would say my grandmother's right there next to him. So, um, you know, she was very familiar too. I think that the goal was trying to identify the, that labor intensive subassembly uh, uh, family group. So things that people had to touch that are difficult to automate that um, kind of helped to provide those jobs. And again, with being community-minded, 
how can we provide and create jobs uh, with that are that are good and stable? And so they looked after those types of things. And as they reached out to companies, that was circuit card work was our initial kind of ability. And then after that, um, <clears throat> it was uh, you know wire harnesses. And now we've even gotten into some fiber optics some assemblies too. So it's it's pretty good. How many employees do you have? We're just under around 400 so we're like i think 360 something with that last check we've got three factories in western north dakota killdeer is our corporate headquarters on rodeo drive which i love and um dickinson <laughs> and then also in Hedinger, north dakota and we've just recently expanded into kerrville texas and we've got about 20 a little over 20 employees there as well so our largest facility is in dickinson and that has military as well as uh, commercial aerospace uh, work in it. And it's just, it's great. Wire harnesses, some fiber optic assemblies. We've got a good uh, positive airflow uh, room to uh, do some really, really cutting edge work. So we're continually uh, looking to advance. And we always have in mind, you know, quality place to work. It's nice, you know, it's, it's clean and, and uh, you know, well lit and, and things like that. But our team always recognizes that there are many lives on the line, uh, you know, at any given time, be that commercial aerospace or in support of our warfighter. So we've got good, you know, just good emphasis on quality and quality of life in the workplace and quality of product to our customer. What prompted the decision to expand outside of the state? Well, I think like many uh many in business in North Dakota, workforce uh, constraints exist. And so we, we really were working to stay with that small town community mindset uh, that we remain committed to. But we're just, you know, running lack of people, running out of people and trying to identify what's a good solution set. That and it was kind of a complimentary decision. We've got some customers located in the San Antonio area. Um, that seems to be a growing uh, area. We've got some good relations. University of North Dakota has partnered with a small university in Kerrville called Schreiner University uh, for engineering curriculum. And uh, so there's already some North Dakota ties. Plus, we had some familiarity with the area. So there seemed to be a number of factors. But the initial driver was we just needed some more people. And that's a good challenge to have. It's good that our customer demand uh, kind of created that environment for us and that opportunity. When the oil uh, boom came back, the Bakken, in the, what was it, 2008, somewhere in there. You know, it's always ebbed and flowed, but when it came back big time was sometime around 2008. It's had a couple dips and it's, you know, pretty significant again. How did that impact? the talent pool in terms of people you were looking for or even people that you had that might have been, you know, stolen from me because they could pay me maybe more money. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. It's, it's a challenge. I think uh, predominantly with our, with men, I think that the oil field was a little bit more attractive. Uh, money certainly drove a lot up. And we remain committed to always trying to put 
you know, do the best we can. It's it's a tightrope balance, right? You you want to pay the most that you possibly can to your teammates and really um, complement the benefits packages that you provide and do the best you can to knock it out of the park there so that we do have that good quality work environment and opportunity for upward mobility and all that good stuff. But we also compete in an environment where, you know, some of our competitors are in Mexico, Morocco, or China. And obviously their pay value sets aren't really in the, in the league with ours, but we have to be competitive in our overall um, submittal for the work package. So it's a balance. Um, and the oil, when the when oil's doing well, as I referenced earlier on in the podcast, uh, you know they have, they've got a lot more what seems to be almost limitless, limitless resources. I know that's not the case, but it it certainly can be a little bit more, or a lot more robust in the way of what they can pay. So it does have an impact. That having been said, it's I think an industry that people know that they can't really hang their hats on all the time. That there's a lot of risk associated, even if you're going out and slinging chains. Um, you know, if you're going out and um, working on the eco pads, if you're actually getting dirty, you know, freezing and you're getting compensated well for it, but it's a tough, tough backbreaking job in many cases. And that um, might not remain for long term, depending on global environment, other factors, um, policy, regulation, and all kinds of things. So I do think that the team that our, many of our teammates appreciate that stability that comes with manufacturing and the warmth. And we do have the majority of our workforce, especially in North Dakota is, is women or females, many of whom uh, have children and value our flex hours. That's another component to our company. That's a core value set that was kind of, again, kind of heavily influenced, I think by my grandmother, but it's unique in manufacturing, but it's a cool benefit. And I think it kind of sets us apart from some of that, um, from the very lucrative jobs in the Bakken, but again, risky, potentially, perhaps physically demanding, in some cases dangerous. Uh, you know, KMM provides kind of a safe, clean, warm work environment with some stability associated with it. So mm. we try to play to our strengths, I guess. But it is a factor, and I think everybody in Western North Dakota would, would recognize that as well. Really, the whole state. I mean, we've got... Um, I've got a lot of friends in Grand Forks who've said, you know, the oil price of oil directly affects them as well in aerospace industry, you know, seemingly non-related. But when it comes to workforce constraints, workforce development, it's a reality. Oh, it's a big deal in North Dakota. We have, what, 760,000 people, whatever it is. That's a, a small city in some parts of the country. So... We have that number of people, and the three things that really drive our economy are fossil fuels, natural resource exploration and production, agriculture, and then I think I, tourism. I think those are the three biggest. And um, so when one of those two that are subject to weather is subject, you know, they're commodities, the price goes down, uh, sometimes there's no activity. When one of those is impacted negatively, that's a big deal for North Dakota. Conversely, when it's going really well, that's a big deal for North Dakota on the upside. And I was thinking about this question, and I should have asked it earlier when we were talking about, you know, making sure the landing wheels are down. In, in that production 
line or process. I'm probably not saying that correctly. The uh, inspection and uh, quality assurance steps to make sure that what I just said works, that the, when the landing wheels are supposed to be down, they're down. How does that work in in your in your company? Is that, is that responsibility of a team or one person? How does that work? So it flows throughout. It's it's industry wide and it's so critical. It's it's kind of how we were talking about like the the heartfelt appreciation of the agrarian to the having good stewardship of the land. That is in aerospace manufacturing. That's how we view quality. So it goes all the way from the way that we empower the workstations for our teammates on the operating floor, on the assembly floor. We view them as uh, surgeons because, as I referenced, and, and it's, it's critical to appreciate, a surgeon has one life on the line when they've got one person that they're operating on. Our teammates are operating on something that affects hundreds, potentially, of people, lives in the air, you know, be they, again, commercial or warfighters on the ground. So it's critical that we get it right and that everything that goes out our door is works properly, is delivered on time, works properly every time, 100%. So the quality metrics are you can feel it when you walk in from the way that the workstations look. They look different. They look like there's, again, that we throw around words like continuous improvement and advanced manufacturing, but they're real. We try to identify how do we alleviate any kind of stress associated with the go-get of you know getting a given tool how do we ensure that we can make it as as easy as possible utilizing visual aids or um, what the japanese manufacturing model uses pokiyoking um, essentially kind of making it very difficult to do it any other way but the right way so we know when tools need to be calibrated where they are how they're to be uh, you know kept up to date and operators are very keen to that the management team is very keen to that, and our quality team is very keen to, associated with having multiple layers throughout the production process of catching any kind of internal escape to the next area, such that when it goes out our door and it arrives at our customer, be that Boeing or Lockheed or um, or even any sub-tier, because on some platforms we supply yet to, you know, we're the third, you know, we're further down the supply chain. We value our tier one presence. That's even more critical. But the closer you get to that aircraft, the more and more and more eyes have been on it throughout the process. Um, everything from understanding antiquated parts, um, counterfeit parts. It goes up and down from the purchasers all the way to uh, you know the shipping department. So it's it's critical, and you can feel it when you tour our shop floor, which I welcome you to do sometime. <laughs> I would love to do that, by the way, and maybe go for a horse ride with you. Because I hey, haven't been, be on, a, I yeah, haven't been sure. on a horse for a long, long time. KMM has customers in the military and then commercial airline industry. Started in 87 out of North Dakota. You have 350, 360, 70 employees. I can't remember the number. Most of them in North Dakota. That's a big deal. That's a big company uh, in, in North Dakota. When you look forward now, five years, I probably should have asked this question differently, but I won't. When you look forward now, five years, 
with regards to technology changes, the rapid advancements, which one of them, you know, artificial intelligence, robotics, whatever, which one of them do you believe will have the greatest positive impact on your company? Well, it's kind of fun because right there in Bismarck, we're already kind of working a little bit with Bismarck State College and uh, our new president, Dr. Doug Jensen. Um, I think he's got something going with mechatronics, and I really think that that's an invaluable perspective to bring to the table. Uh, And that is kind of the utilization of multiple disciplines of engineering in kind of molded into one to address uh, demand. And he uses the example of what it's like when you go into like a public restroom and you need to like you wash your hands and the faucet turns on automatically. So clearly there's sensors involved in that. There's uh, flow and pressure that has to be utilized with the in, in temperature for the water um, and when it's supposed to turn on and when it's supposed to turn off. So there's electrical engineering, there's mechanical engineering, and there's, you know, some kind of, you know, many different disciplines brought to the table. I think that that is something, that notion of mechatronics and what he's developing to put into a polytechnical model is going to be very complementary to our manufacturing sector in North Dakota. And it's fun that it's right there at home. And I think that's something that we're looking to advance and build on. When you have, from our perspective, as that that labor-intensive sub-assembly platform that we've grown off of, we're also looking to continuously complement that with some enhancements for what can we do to enhance the state of the art? What's the next thing? How fast are the planes going to start flying? Do we need to address solutions associated with vibration, chafing on wire harnesses? Um, you know, how can we be solutions providers and have a niche in that regard? And I think that's a that's a very fun area. So in five years, it's it, it's my hope that we'll have some uh, niche uh, opportunity to be a solutions provider. We've already realized that on some platforms, but it would be good to grow and have that opportunity to be um, steady state on uh, many ranging platforms. So we know we're going to be flying more. We know we're going to be flying faster. And I think that the world's going to continue to have that demand. So a lot of fun. Aerospace is good. Yeah. You're the only person that's given me the opportunity to say this. Four years ago, this coming October, Deb and I were in Italy. And one of the stops, we were in Milan. And Milan has, at that time, the biggest Starbucks anywhere. And it is an amazing, amazing operation. Have you been there? Have you ever have you been there by chance? Not to Milan, but I mean, I wonder what the people in Seattle would say about your praise for the Milan Starbucks. <laughs> so, and the reason I'm bringing it up, I always thought, you know, all this great technology in the restroom, but it, when you wash your hands, there's a sensor, but you all of a sudden you have to go somewhere to dry them and there's water all over the place. It always bugs me. They figured it out. They figured it out in the bathroom in Milan. And so now, so I'm going to say, get on an airplane, one that has components that are from KMM, by the way, uh, and go check it out. All right. The way I I should have asked the question originally was, when you came uh, back from the East Coast, went to work for KMM, now moving forward, 
What was the biggest technology change in terms of advancements that you saw during that period of time? Well, it was more customer demand. When I came back from from the East Coast, I I went straight to work for Senator Dorgan. I resumed, but I, I wanted to be in the state. So I worked for him. I, I had I really, as much as I love genuinely and I'm thankful for our family business and have a, a, a genuine commitment to it. At the time, I kind of thought, you know, I need to um, help out in public service fashion. And I was passionate about doing that um, by working with, with policymakers, federal policymakers, which was really fun. Uh, but I, we obtained the contract in the commercial, uh, Aeros Boeing commercial, which was just a tremendous blessing. And as a reference, you know, there's only one of only four, really, uh, our competitors are on that are global. And, uh, so it's very unique to be, to have that role. And so, uh, basically it was the customer demand thing. It was kind of like, you know, the the family-owned business, the family we were growing, and there was a need that I, I potentially could offer some of my skill sets. And so I worked with a, a vice president at that time of the Boeing company who turned into kind of a mentor. And, um, of course, it was fun to, a fun opportunity to work with my grandparents. You know I mean? The whole thing just kind of worked out. It wasn't something I planned from when I left Yale, but um, it just turned into, hey, come back home and get to work. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, I, I kind of went with that. So it was fun. And that remains to be so. I was going to save this for later, but what was the person you just referenced, was that Tim Keating? No, though I do know, I do know Tim Keating, but no, this person was named was um, John Cornish. And he was uh, at the directorate level, but then turned into a VP and he worked well with the board. He kind of was, an old hand that got called into troubled platforms, <laughs> but in the past kept trying to retire, but he was such a wealth of knowledge and had so much respect that um, they kept him on different, different programs. And the board really was working with him on a number of business things, but that, I mean, it was a fun, like I say, a fun opportunity. He saw in me some, um, some qualities that he sought to kind of compliment and hone. And, you know, from there, I was able to meet stellar people like Tim. That's funny that you should bring his name up, though. What, how did you know about him? I, I, I try to do a little bit of research, Kristen. Okay. Before I, and so I was reading on your website, and this speaks to me, by the way. I hope it does for listeners uh, about um, the, the career path that you've chosen, the public policy and the service background and the relationships that you built and getting good at what you do, particularly the relationship piece. You know, and this is from your, your website. The Kildare Man- Mountain Manufacturing was presented with the Excellence of Advocacy Award by Boeing. Remember, $60 billion company, about 140,000 employees. And here's, here's what, I'm not going to read it all. But Tim Keating, Senior Vice President for Government Operations, was very appreciative of the efforts because it helped Boeing to navigate one of the most challenging sessions of Congress, helping to reauthorize the critical export-import bank, garner funding for key defense programs, and 
protect tax incentives. And I can tell as I read this that you were critically involved in that effort because then you say KMM is committed to growing jobs, expanding the economy in North Dakota and the United States. A functioning export-import bank is critical to facilitating U.S. sales abroad. And I'm going to assume, and you should never do that, I'm going to assume that because of your background, because of the people that you had worked for, you were able to be involved in the right types of discussions to help Boeing, you know, you went, you knew who to probably to go to. And that's all about relationships. It's about understanding public policy. It's about understanding laws and regulations and who can help move things forward. And clearly you played a critical role in that, uh, Kristen. That's that correct? Was, it was a fun, yeah. Well, you know, it does speak well of you that you certainly do your research. <laughs> That's cool. And I appreciate that, um, Mike. I mean, that's that's very cool. It's a fun experience. And it's you're right in that. Um, I think not just the experience having worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Dorgan and our close congressional delegation, which it's kind of neat. I mean, North Dakota uh, policymakers inherently have to work well together and close with each other. And, and that remains true to this day, which is nice. I think that's unique among states. But also having a background from North Dakota with a state-owned bank provides a unique perspective to communicate with policymakers who may be somewhat adversarial to reauthorization of export-import bank. And it's not like the most flashy um, conversation piece on Capitol Hill. It's a it's a it's an entity that is it is critical. It's very important. It's one of the only government. Um, back organizations that pays for itself. It's very responsible in the way of its lending practices, but it's a very easy um, soundbite to criticize, unfortunately, from those who want to, who just simply don't understand, in my opinion, capitalism and um, the ability and the need to grow markets of prospective allied countries. So it's, um, it's something that I was provided with in the way of my background from being from North Dakota <clears throat> working on Capitol Hill, and then um, just being blessed with good mentors. And, and, you know, it's nice to run around in a community of, I'd, I'd say, smart people. I mean, Tim Keating would be one of them, so it's high praise indeed. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. But, but that is an organization that I'm working, continue to work, to, to try to empower and advance. Uh, Senator Heitkamp it remains very integral on that, too. Uh, and Senator Kramer on the banking committee remains good. So our delegation is is good, uh, both past and current uh, in the way of, of working toward that. But there's still, you know, a lot of folks say, well, why should we be helping businesses, uh, you know, take out risk loans or whatever? The reality is the metrics that are utilized are very risk averse. And uh, as these developing nations thrive, many of them want to start uh airlines and that's not just necessary in the way of you know the easy criticized you know Boeing increasing their sales it's not just that simple it impacts the supply chain that directly impacts western north dakota that empowers eastern north dakota too and we have young people going to college there and coming back starting their own entrepreneurial endeavors but then beyond that we've got farmers and um and other entrepreneurs who work to sell equipment, 
to these new developing nations for agriculture, seeds. Um, our, our academic institutions work for partnerships. We've got NDSUs partnered with um, Ghana. I was fortunate enough to kind of participate in some of those um, conversations, as well as, you know, the University of Airbill a while back with Iraq, which, you know, remains tumultuous. But if we don't extend and make it a priority to have the risk takers over in the developing nations have the opportunity to take out a loan and the stability associated with those who want to make the sale in the United States. We're going to lose out on opportunities to other countries such as China um, and and even, you know, many in the you know, Airbus, for example, benefits greatly from a few uh, of their versions of export-import banks from France and, and elsewhere in Europe. So, it, it, all we're asking for is to be on a fair and level playing field with the rest of the world and in aerospace. But I also recognize that empowers our agriculture sectors and other sectors that will be alienated for opportunity without that uh, functioning bank. So it's it's an easy thing to advocate for. And it's a lot of fun. That was very well put. You should run for public office again, by the way. Oh, thank you. So. Magic wand question. If you could wave a magic wand over the heads of North Dakota residents, what's the one thing you would really want them to know about Kildare Mountain Manufacturing? I think our commitment to our our commitment to, to rural communities in North Dakota and throughout our heartland, our commitment to advancing the state of the art in aerospace, first and foremost, the, the genuine you know, we're a family-owned company, but we really have a family feel throughout our company. And so we have a great commitment um, to each other, to our respective towns, and to the opportunities for our young people. Um, we really work to ensure that, you know, that generation continues to go so that, you know, our, our teammates on the assembly floor are able to send their kids, you know, empower them for their opportunities, be they in um, business or in, in further education. And so I think that that's the, the chief thing that I would hope people feel when they encounter uh, KMM. I think it's something that has been echoed from our customers. They recognize that we really have that family feel and commitment to excellence. And, um, you know, just I think that that fosters the differentiating factor of our continued, I mean, our customer service is great. And I think that flows because we're servant minded in our own uh, interactions at home throughout our factory floor. Mm. I'm going to ask that question a different way now. Same magic wand, but you're going to wave it over the heads of young women in the state of North Dakota. What's the one thing you want them to know about their role? in not only shaping their own destiny and future, but how that could also impact the destiny and future of the state of North Dakota? Well, I mean, I think that um, young women can enjoy a legacy of very uh, innovative, creative, and, and, you know, nurturing in many ways women from our, our history. So we come from a long line of innovators, of tough, but in a kind of a cool uh, complimentary way uh, that brings a lot of auth- authenticity uh, in the way of finding solutions to difficult challenges, be they from back in the you know beginnings of pioneer days, if you will, 
to the innovative needs that that are horizontal. So when solutions come out or challenges exist, there's a ton of, of women that you can look to past to draw strength and inspiration from. And it doesn't just have to be engineering. While I would encourage young women to pursue that, I myself didn't, but my cousin Erica did, and she um, excelled in that regard very well. But, you know, STEM, of course, is critical. But there's other cool women leaderships. You know, Doc's Pretzels is kind of a fun thing to draw upon. That's a great innovative story of saying, hey, look, you know, you can think beyond the borders of the Badlands and the Red River and really reach a global marketplace. So I think that there's just a great legacy in North Dakota of women being able to um, be empowered and take risks and uh, have confidence and know that, you know, that there's not just a great legacy, but a cool community of, of great mentors and good, good people who provide opportunities. I mean, it, your leadership spoke volumes to that too, Mike, you know, so there's um, so a lot of gratitude to be had in North Dakota for opportunities. Well, well thank you. Well, by golly, I tip my hat to Patricia and Don Hedger coming back to North Dakota and back in, well, at least the company was started in 1987, if I had that correctly, mm -hmm. in, during really, really difficult times and what a legacy they have left through their employees, their company, their granddaughter, Kristen, and uh, North Dakota is really blessed to have KMM here and to have you involved in its operations and your family. What's the last thing we should know about you, Kristen? <laughs> um, I'm grateful to be on this show. Glad to be uh, having fun. I, I, uh, I guess, you know, I'm just a grateful person. Hopefully my authenticity shows through and I look forward to trying to continue to Interact with others to foster uh, good opportunities in our in our heartland and in North Dakota. Well, thank you. And if 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 you don't remember anything about what we talked about today, remember the importance of prayer. Yeah, that uh, that says it all, right? That's 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 yeah. You can't repeat that enough, and uh, that's the best lesson that I had ever learned. So I'm thankful for that. Thank you so much, Kristen. Indeed. Thank you.